Welcome to the podcast from the Ark Insider, the Africa-focused podcast offering some informal but well-informed Africa-focused conversation, touching on news, current affairs, culture, and other ongoing topics of interest. I'm Karen Allen, and I'm speaking to you from South Africa. My co-presenter, Tara O'Connor, the managing director of Ark, the Pan-African Risk Consultancy firm, Africa Risk Consulting, joins me from France. We both live, work, and breathe African affairs, and our podcast aims to stimulate ideas among those who share a fascination with this part of the world. Tara, welcome. Hello, Karen. Really nice to talk to you. It's been a while. It's been a while, and can you believe it? This little podcast, which started off as a COVID-19 project um, 18 months ago, is 30 today. We've reached our 30th episode. We had a little pause, but we're back with a vengeance. Absolutely. It is totally extraordinary that this has, this has carried on and thoroughly and enjoyable. And this episode, I have to say, is a great one and very close to my heart because later we'll be focusing on Zambia, which is the country in which I grew up, uh, and particularly focusing on the country as a new president takes the helm. Yeah, HH, a man we've both been following closely. Now, of course, he's not our guest, but we do have a Zambian international development specialist who will help us navigate through what it all means. But first, as always, let's take a look, Tara, at some of the news stories since our last podcast. Huge crowds are still gathering at the gates of Kabul airport, despite warnings by Britain and the United States about threats of a terror attack there. Well, there have been two explosions outside Kabul airport. The Taliban is saying now at least 13 people have been killed, many more injured. But medical sources are saying the number of dead could actually be as high as 25. Haiti's Prime Minister has said the country is on its knees five days after a devastating earthquake. Breaking news story tonight, former President Jacob Zuma has been placed on medical parole because of ill health. Well, that's according to a statement released by the Department of Correctional Services a short while ago. The Western African nation of Guinea has plunged into deeper political instability. A unit of military has seized power, declared a coup in the region, closed the borders and abrogated the constitution. Well, as you heard there, in South Africa, Jacob Zuma's been released from jail on medical parole after serving less than two months in jail. He's found guilty of contempt of court and sentenced to 15 months after he failed to turn up at the Zondo Commission into state capture. Naltar is a big to and fro within the South African press to establish what Zuma's medical condition exactly is and whether it warrants his release from jail and whether the National Commissioner of Correctional Services was effectively overruled by the parole boards, with heavy implications that members of that board, which include doctors, may have been captured or paid off. And I also see, uh, see the ANC, you know, is in trouble for having not paid its, uh, paid its tax bills for its workers, all the national insurance payments for, their, for its workers, um, particularly, again, under Jacob Zuma's presidency, which means salaries are not paid for several months, leaving the ruling African National Congress in complete disarray as, uh, as the municipal elections approach. And though it's often hard to get excited about municipal elections, these are important this time because it could see a dramatic weakening of the ANC because of all the corruption scandals and COVID and a general level of disgruntlement and could point to the beginnings of a post-ANC future, in my view. 
Well, one of the stories which has gained a lot of traction, and we've just heard about it in the news belt, is the coup in the West African state of Guinea. There have been two military coups in Guinea's past, but it's the first one against the first only democratically elected president uh, and reflects a military uprising against sitting President Alpha Conde's decision to pursue a third term. He did it, of course, by changing the constitution. Sounds familiar? Well, it certainly has echoes of Burundi in 2015. And something that perhaps signals a warning to other African leaders who manipulate the constitution to stay in office. Well, after Conde changed the constitution, we saw mass protests on the streets, protests that were quite violently put down. And it really did reflect a crisis of the government's legitimacy. And although the new military governments restored some calm, the African Union has urged a speedy return to democratic rule. But a lot of this, Tara, is bound up in Guinea's mineral wealth, isn't it? And corruption perpetrated by both those inside the country and outside. Well, there is also the factor that military intervention was a really a key feature of politics in West Africa throughout the 1980s and 1990s. And the new leader, Mamadi Dumbuya, quoted Ghana's military leader, Jerry John Rawlings, when he took power. So I'm hoping that it's not a going back to that trend, particularly as in nearby uh, Mali. There have been three military coups now since 2012. And yes, as you rightly say, mining is, important, is an important backdrop to these military coups. And it also reflects a, a perceived corruption and the unhappiness in the mining deals done by these ousted presidents and their sons in particular. Guinea, in Guinea, mining is all important. It produces bauxite out of which aluminium is made and bauxite now accounts for about 90% of its exports. And typically the price of aluminium in fear of a shortage has shot up in response to the coup. But then while we're on mining and mineral, mineral prices, copper and copper prices have surged in the last while from under around $500 a tonne in March last year to over $9,400 per tonne. And that will also get a further boost with the news from Zambia that we've talked about and that we're going to talk about as a new pro-business uh, president um, won in an, in an election landslide. Yeah, and he unseated Edgar Lungo. As you say, more on that in just a few minutes. But another story, Tara, I think worthy of note is about Rwanda. Not only is Rwanda among a handful of African countries that have taken in refugees from Afghanistan, and in particular pupils from Kabul's only girls boarding school, a place I visited and where the kids are, there are a few kids I know who attend the school. But it's interesting, Rwandan forces appear to have brought some semblance of stability to the restive province of Cabo Delgado in northern Mozambique, where you'll remember the provincial capital, Palma, was captured by insurgents, some of whom claim an affinity to IS. Yes, it, it was a very unusual move of Mozambique to invite uh, Rwandan troops over and above the neighbouring Southern African Development Community forces to restore order to the gas-rich province that was overrun, as you say, by Islamic State insurgents. And they've been word on the ground is that they've been very effective and the insurgents have literally melted away, abandoning their positions, abandoning armaments and equipment in the face of a very well-disciplined and well-equipped and effective troop. Yeah, and I guess the question is, how long will they be able to hold that peace? Because, of course, there's also a, a separate, almost competing force that's gone in, hasn't there, under the auspices of, the, of SADC, 
the Southern African Development Community, and there may well be frictions between the Rwandan troops and, and the, the other forces. So, yeah, people are watching Mozambique very, very closely. Very closely. But what was uh, what the extraordinary uh, news was, of course, that the Rwandans are using uh, first-rate technology, drone technology, to you know, to as to mount surveillance in the area, and they really stood out um, by leaps and bounds in terms of discipline and presentation, as from what I can gather from the SADC troops that are there. You're listening to The Ark Insider, the Africa-focused podcast with Karen Allen and Tara O'Connor. Well, we've mentioned already interesting times in Zambia. We have a new man at the top in Africa's second richest copper state, 59-year-old businessman Hakiende Hichilema has secured the presidency after his sixth attempt in what was a largely peaceful election. In a landslide victory, he unseated Edgar Lungu, the previous incumbent, who was widely criticised for having driven the country headlong into a debt crisis and done little to stem the tide of rampant corruption. Well, to try to help us navigate our way through this is Zambian economist Trevor Simumba, who spent many years working on international development issues, finance and also trade issues with the African Union Commission. Trevor, welcome. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Got me here in South Africa and you've got Tara in France. Oh, nice. <laughs> That's the, the beauty of latest technology. <laughs> Trevor, listen to orientate our listeners who may not be familiar with the country. Zambia is a mineral-rich country with high levels of copper, but also cobalt. Zambia was also one of the first African countries to liberalise its economy through privatisation and completely freeing up its exchange rate. But it was plunged into recession last year, the first time, I believe, since 1998. It faces a foreign debt crisis to the tune of 12 billion US dollars. So with all that in mind, what's the first thing the new leader Hachienda Hichilema, or HH as he's more widely known as, what does he need to do to begin to turn things around? You've summarised the situation very well. In fact, the, re the biggest reason, one of the biggest reasons why Hakainde was successful in this last election is because of the economy. For the first time, the effects of the stagnant growth and the recession has affected each and every sector of the economy. It has affected each and every Zambian. Whether you are rich, middle class, uh, poor, it has affected everyone equally. We've seen a rise in prices of all essential commodities, and in particular, food items, which affect the poor the most. But to top it all off, the mismanagement and the pure corruption of the Patriotic Front government really, really took the cake. I mean, people reached a point where every Zambian, no matter how low level they are, they understood the effect of the economy. I can tell you that um, three days before elections, I traveled to the northern province, uh, to my where I come from, uh, which is Mbala um, and Pulungu. That's right up in the north. And that's supposed to be a stronghold of the Patriotic Front. But we, uh, the UPND won two seats in that area, Mpulungu, Mbala, in fact, three, Pulungu, Mbala, and Senga Hill, which is historical. But when I spoke to market women, I asked them a simple question. I said, look, you know, the, 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 the PF is campaigning saying that uh, you shouldn't vote for Hakainde because he's from the south, he's a Tonga, and all that. So this one woman who's the chairperson of the Women Marketeers, she said to me, no, 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 no. We don't care about where Hakainde comes from. What we care about is for him to fix agriculture and enable us women to be able to sell 
not only locally, but also to export, because there's a market for a lot of the products in Tanzania, in the DRC, and in other places. So she said to me, we've actually christened him. Instead of Hichilema, we are calling him Sichilema. You know, because where I come from, our name starts with an S-I, like I'm Simumba. So, yeah, so, so they changed it and said, no, we call him Sichilima. You know, so when I heard that, I, I remember I told my colleague, I said, you know what? This tells me that this is the end for the Patriotic Front. And indeed, it was the end. The mining sector was particularly badly hit under President Edgar Lungu from entering into prolonged and costly battles with major mining companies and committing the state to buy back copper mines, uh, adding to Zambia's ballooning debt. What is HH doing now to restore confidence? The mining sector was hit very hard uh, because not only did we see misguided policy from the government, but it was highly inconsistent. You know, one thing about the mining sector and the reason why Zambia has been so successful over the years is that we've consistently maintained a policy framework and a, a tax regime that has been quite conducive to the mining investors. However, there's been a lot of public pressure over the last, I would say, 10 years, 10 years or so, particularly with the entry of the Chinese into the mining sector in Zambia. We've seen a huge public outcry that Zambians, ordinary Zambians, are not benefiting from the mines. Now, unfortunately, the way the Patriotic Front went about uh, dealing with that perception was that they basically entrenched corruption and power within themselves. Because, for example... Concola Copper Mines, which is our biggest uh, mine, which, was, uh, on, which is owned by Vendata of India, the government decided to liquidate. How do you liquidate a huge mine like that? Okay? And then they put a lawyer to be in charge of that mine. And so you saw with, within a year a 50% decline in output of copper, which had a major impact in terms of employment levels and in terms of uh, jobs. In fact, this had a political, um, how do you say, penalty for the PF because for the first time the Patriotic Front lost the Chingola seat to, to, the, to the UPND. And in fact, the gentleman who won that seat, uh, Mr. Chipoka Mlenga, has just been appointed Minister of Commerce, Trade and Industry, which again tells you that Hakainde is very focused on seeing some changes in the mining sector. Now, why is Hakainde someone who generates confidence in terms of dealing with the mining sector? He has been a consultant for many, many years. In fact, that's how me and him got to know each other. We both of us worked on privatization. Okay? So, so he has an, a, an acute awareness of the issues that affect the mining sector. Secondly, but more importantly, he has the leverage because he, got, he won a huge mandate and he won a huge mandate from the Copper Belt for a reason, because the Copper Belt wants to see the mining sector dealt with in a manner that will maximize benefits to both Zambians, okay, and also to the mine investors, and so that it's on a sustainable basis that we develop the mining sector. And Hakainde is very well placed to negotiate a much better win-win deal. I'm hoping, and I heard uh, in the president's speech uh, yesterday uh, when he opened parliament, he actually did state that uh, he's going to put a focus on creating a sustainable supply chain and value chain in the mining sector, which means it's not just looking at just uh, the primary production of copper and cobalt, but also we should be looking to add value. And you know that he has created a ministry of green economy and environment, 
which again is a very uh, forward-looking uh, policy. Okay, so it means that he understands that with climate change, yes, it's a challenge, but there's also an opportunity because you know that uh, most of the solar panels, electric vehicles, they need copper. You know, um, even some of the PPP equipment that is being supplied, the masks, that little metal thing is copper. That's copper because copper is a very good um, uh, defender from germs and things like that. And it's also a good uh, catalyst, which they use in the electric. So we want to begin to look at how we can add value to our copper, to our cobalt, and also looking at other industrial minerals. We don't just have copper in Zambia. We also have emeralds, you know, um, and other in silica, uh, gypsum, all these that are, are beginning to be uh, in high demand across the world. Nickel, we have nickel here as well, you know, so chromium, you know, um, platinum. So we need to explore more. We need to create a sustainable uh, basis for the mining sector. And I, I believe that the UPND has the correct policies. And in Hakka India, we have a president who understands uh, the mining sector. So we record this podcast. The governor of the central bank has just resigned. He was controversial anyway and has been replaced with his new deputy. And the new president has appointed a relatively lean cabinet of just 17 ministers. Is this what Zambia needs at the moment, a largely technocratic cabinet? The kind of government that is required, and you're very right, is a technocratic government. We don't need a political government. We don't need a government that's focused on thinking about the next election. Oh, how can we make sure we win the day? You know, this government that we just removed, the Patriotic Front, the biggest weakness they had is that they were just looking at elections all the time. They get elected today. Tomorrow, they're already thinking, how can we entrench ourselves and make sure that we win the next election? Whereas with this government, uh, looking at the team that he has started with, I think it's a strong team. It's a good mix of experience and uh, youth. For example, the Minister of Foreign Affairs is a young MP, Member of Parliament, St uh, Stephen Kakubo, who's only, I think, is about 42, 43 years old. Very young, but a very sharp young man. When you look at Minister of Commerce, Trade and Industry, another young man, as I mentioned, but he's a qualified quantity surveyor. He used to work for Concola Copper Mines in the mining industry in, Ching in Copper Belt in Chingola, and he won a very, very difficult seat to win for, for the opposition in Chingola. So, again, a good choice. Then you look at the Minister of Health, uh, Sylvia Maceo. That's someone with experience, and it's a woman. And you know, the Minister of Health has been scandalized with so much corruption. So you, we need a, a total cleanup, and she's well-placed because she was Minister of Health before in the um, Mwanawasa government, I think. I think, yes, in the, Mwanawasa, uh, the late Mwanawasa's government. So she's got that experience. But I think the most important appointment that he has made is Minister of Finance, Dr. Stumbeko Msokotwani, because the issue of the debt crisis for Zambia is the biggest elephant in the room. You know, it's... Is something we have to deal with. There is nothing that Hakainde will achieve if he does not deal with the debt issue because it's really affecting our revenue, it's affecting our government spending, it's affected social spending. So that appointment was very critical, and I think he made the right choice. Uh, he's, he's also fired, I mean, not well, the governor resigned, but he was going to be fired anyway. The central bank governor is no longer there. He was ill-qualified for that job. The acting governor is a very well-qualified Zambian economist, Dr. Chipimo. 
but I think the president is still looking for somebody much more experienced to be able to appoint him as governor. Chava, can we find out a little more about Hakienda Hichilema HH, the man? I was fortunate enough to have met him and his family back in 2016 when he was jailed for not giving way to the presidential motorcade. That in itself was a rather bizarre story which got a lot of traction on social media and appeared to be very much a ruse to curtail his political ambitions. But in the brief time we had, he really did come across as a thoughtful man, yes, able to stir a crowd and a young crowd at that, but not a populist or a big man leader in the traditional sense. He clearly has a business head, having headed up Coopers before turning to farming. But does HH represent a kind of new kind of leadership for Zambia? Or is he just better at playing the media game? You are very correct in saying that he's not a big man leader type. No, he's not. Uh, in fact, uh, it's very interesting that many years ago, when he was still with Coopers and Librand, Okay, and uh, he then set up Grand Fountain. I was still in government myself with the Ministry of Commerce, Trade and Industry as an economist. Um, but then I also went into consulting. I actually started working for Hakainde's former boss, uh, Mr. John Kasanga, who used to be the partner at Coopers and Librand, but he set up his own consulting firm. And then uh, Hakainde took over as a partner in charge of consulting. And then I started working for, for, for John uh, with his own company, IMCS. So it was very interesting that we still used to interact, you know, we used to do work together. But the one thing that I remember always, he always used to talk about the, the lack of leadership. You know, he always used to say to me, Trevor, when do you think it will be our time to begin to, to provide leadership to a country like Zambia, you know? Because he would say to me, look at all these things we do. You know, we used to, he's a, I'm an economist just like he's an economist. We used to do a lot of policy papers, you know, a lot of advisory services to the government, to the ZPA and various institutions. But, you know, this, the political leaders would not act on some of these things. And, you know, it would, it would be quite frustrating for us, especially as young Zambians, seeing that, look, if we did things differently, we can actually grow our economy and do things. So he was always passionate about the development of this country. And his decision to enter politics was not because um, he wanted to, to, he just, for the sake of it, of just wanting power. No, he, he had a vision from the beginning that he wanted to provide a different sort of leadership, a leadership that will create more leaders, so Hakainde is not a type who's coming here and he's here to stay for 10, 15, 20 years. No, he's here to stay for as long as the constitution allows, which is two terms. He wants to be able, to, basically he wants to create an environment where if I, for example, decide I want to stand for president, it shouldn't lead to me being arrested or being threatened with death. We do not need that kind of politics. And for me, as a young Zambian, as an African, I'm very, very proud of Zambia, and I'm very proud of Hakainde Ichilema. Already, I can tell you, last night I, was, I attended a cocktail in the evening, and um, it was a cocktail of a lot of UPND supporters, but there were some ministers there and others. But what was interesting, everyone kept saying, you know what is so nice is to have the freedom to talk, to say, you know, to say what you feel, whether even if your opinion is against the government, you are free to stalk. The leadership of Hakainde is a leadership that has opened up the country. We're not saying that he's some kind of saint. No, 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 no. We're not going to make him into that. But he definitely is a Democrat. He definitely is a person who believes in the rule of law. 
and he's a very disciplined and focused uh, man. Uh, and I believe he's going to succeed so long as he can continue to listen, to advise, continue to consult, you know, and continue to be humble and serve the people of this country. I believe he will succeed. Can I ask about the role of China, Trevor? China and Zambia had a relationship that dates back many, many years. The Chinese are involved in what? infrastructural projects, as well as having significant mining and agricultural interest. And I understand they've also taken on some of Zambia's debt. But many young Zambians that you speak to accuse the Chinese of stealing their jobs and of perpetrating a kind of neo-colonialism. Is that a widely held view or has Beijing and um, Lusaka found a way to work together? And are the Chinese pretty much welcome there still? Yes, uh, that's a very good question. The issue of China has been a troubling problem in Zambia for a while now. Um, the public perception towards the Chinese is still very negative. Let me give you a, a, a background, and then you'll understand why it has even become so perversive. When the late Mr. Michael Sata, the founder of the Patriotic Front, when he was campaigning in 2011, the biggest issue he had was the issue of the Chinese. Uh, two years before the 2011 election, 15 Zambians were shot to death by Chinese mine owners at Chambishi Mine on the Copper Belt. The police never took any action. Up to this day, we don't know who those Chinese uh, people were and why they had guns. Okay? They shot miners who were protesting bad conditions of service. Now, how do you shoot unarmed people that are protesting? That kind of incident became so pervasive that Sata stood on a platform and said, when I become president, I'm going to make sure these, he, instead of calling them Chinese investors, he called them Chinese infestors. But what happened? Soon after Mr. Sata was inaugurated, he hosted a luncheon at State House for 150 Chinese chief executives. Those were the first visitors to the State House, rather than organized a luncheon for Zambian businesses or civil society. He organized a luncheon for 150 Chinese investors. Chinese companies in the last 10 years have taken 80% of all infrastructure projects that have been uh, um, initiated by the government of the Republic of Zambia. 80% of those have been taken by Chinese companies. And out of, in, in that 80%, Two major Chinese companies are the ones who've benefited. Avic, Avic of China, and China Jiangxi. Talk about the airports, the airports that have been done. Talk about the roads. It was Avic, China Jiangxi. All right. Now, how do you think the engineers in Zambia feel, the construction companies, the competitors from South Africa, the Europe, America, you know, Zambian contractor companies who have not benefited from all this spending. We have an external debt of close to $13 billion. Much of that external debt is, is Chinese debt. China is now Zambia's number one creditor, bilateral creditor. After China, it's the Eurobonds, which is the market. It's the whole market, right? And then uh, IMF, World Bank, you know, the usual African Development Bank. But, but the bulk of our external debt is China. And the bulk of it went on one sector, roads. And so a lot of people started saying, are we going to eat roads? People don't have food, but you've got a fantastic road <laughs> beside you, you know. So, so it was very lopsided. And quite frankly, for me, what I would like to see the president do to reset 
the relationship. China will never go away. They are our friends. They have businesses here, yes. But the relationship where Chinese companies come, single source, okay, come to the government, offer the government, say, oh, we can get money for you from the China, from China Exim Bank, and we want to do this project. Those days must go. We need to see at least a minimum of three companies, restricted tender, compete. They can, they can be Chinese, no problem, but there should be some level of competition. There should be some level of value for money to be done before we, we make these uh, deals. All right. Secondly, the president needs to institute a forensic audit of all Chinese-funded projects so that we are able to weed out those that were corruptly obtained and inflated. I can give you one example, because that's an example which I conducted a, a detailed investigation. I've submitted all the information to the Anti-Corruption Commission and to the Ministry of Finance. The so-called Lusaka Ndola dual carriageway. This road was in originally estimated to cost about $200 million, right? The government tendered it for a public-private partnership. It's a 361-kilometer road. When the government tendered it, a company from South Africa won the tender, and their bid was $450 million to do uh, the 361-kilometer Lusaka Ndola dual carriageway, right? And it was a, supposed to be a PPP. So meaning that this South African construction company was going to raise the finance, build the road, and then put up toll gates, and then collect uh, their money back through the concession agreement. Because Chinese company, a Chinese company approached the government, and because they wanted to, you know, to get the deal, instead the government shelved the PPP, decided to borrow, and then single-sourced China Jiangxi. And guess how much China Jiangxi quoted for the project? $1.2 billion. China Exim Bank refused to lend this money because they said this is a moral hazard. We have never financed a road worth $1.2 billion. Even in China, even in, Mal in Asia, in Latin America, wherever Ch China Exim Bank is, we've never financed a road for $1.2 billion. How are we going to justify this? To the, to the Chinese government. So they refused to fund that road. And that road, to this day, is not funded. The president launched it with a lot of fanfare, but it was never funded because they, they just said there's no way a road can cost $1.2 billion. That is approximately $2 million per kilometer. Where in the world can you build a, a road for $2 million per kilometer? Quite frankly, if, the, if President Hichilema does not deal with this issue of China in an appropriate manner, it is something that's going to be a, a losing issue for 2026 because Zambians, I can tell you, are fed up and we want to see a change. We need to see Zambians benefiting from the resources that were given to us by God. What do you think that this landslide victory, this massive turnout, what does it mean for region, regional democracy? It means that the time of these old crocs in leadership is over. That's what it means. Yes, because, you know, we've been crying to have a president like Haka Inde for, this, for Africa, really. Let me tell you, it's not just for the region, it's for Africa. For the first time, H, the president Hichilema invited opposition leaders. So we had 
the opposition leader from uh, from Tanzania. We had a leader from Zimbabwe. You know, Ch Ch Nelson Chamisa, he was here. Um, you know, we had uh, Musi Maimane from South Africa. You know, uh, Raila Odinga from Kenya. So this is actually going to cause a tsunami, quite honestly, because it has shown uh, the opposition across Africa that it can be done. If you are fearless, you organize well, use social media. You know, they used to laugh at Hakainde to say, oh, he's just a, a president on social media. Well, that social media downloaded him into State House. <laughs> he's now sitting in State House. 60% of our registered voters in Zambia were youths. And I, I, want, I want to say something to, to, to I hope that some uh, opposition leaders will listen to this podcast. The biggest uh, key to Hakainde's victory was the registration of voters. It's very, very important that when the electoral commission of any country calls for registration of voters, the opposition must not discourage people from registering. That is the key to your victory. You need the new voters to register because young people, they're not coming to play around. They're coming to remove the incumbents because a lot of young Africans are fed up. We are fed up with the mediocrity. We cannot continue having a continent always having being last. Look at the resources that we have. Look at the, the wealth of young people that we have. A lot of these young people are educated now. You know, they, they can speak English. They can use a computer. They are on social media. So reach out to these young people. We did that for, for, the, for, for this campaign, for this election. We made sure that we provided support to civil society, church groups, to get people to register and also to get people to actually vote. Get up and go and vote. That is the critical part. Trevor, thank you very much. It's been a really interesting conversation. Thank you. You've been listening to The Ark Insider with me, Karen Allen, and Tara O'Connor. If you're interested, Tara's team at Ark produces monthly country reports on 22 African markets. You can subscribe to these at info at africariskconsulting.com. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please do let us know. You can use the same address and do feel free to share it on social media and amongst friends. Bye for now.